we tend to either be attracted to beautiful people or else suspicious of them. To some people, beauty is a primary gift. It's a sure sign of God's gracious presence in a person's life. But in our passage, it's not a sure sign that God will exalt you. After all, Vashti was beautiful too. But she was ultimately humbled while Esther was exalted. The principle is that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But this principle cuts both ways. God is aware that man looks on the outward appearance. Therefore, in the hands of the sovereign Lord of history, physical appearance is a means that is sometimes used to save his people. Various times in the history of redemption, the word that is used to emphasize Esther's beauty uh, is used in other places in the Bible. Sarah, Rachel, Joseph was handsome, David, Abigail, Job's daughters, and Solomon's bride. The beauty that is a part of the Lord's work uh, in certain times of history shows up in Moses. Moses, who we read in Hebrews 11.23, was a beautiful child, and that's why his parents hid him for three months. So we're tempted to go to extremes. We're tempted to either accent Esther's beauty or push it down. But we need to see how God used her beauty along with something else in order to accomplish his purposes. Her beauty and then something that was even better that the Lord gave to her. We saw last time how Ahasuerus was showing off his riches at this great feast which for historical reasons we believe might have been part of a war council before he tried to take Greece. Chapter 1 was the third year. Esther is crowned in the seventh year. In between those years, he tries to take Greece. It's a famous war, and he fails. His Persian assets are depleted. He comes back licking his wounds. He spends the rest of his life in sexual endeavors, messing around with the wives of his officers until he's finally assassinated in his own bedroom. That's how he ends up. So obviously, this is a dangerous time in history. When he was trying to build the war council, and now that he's returned, he's licking his wounds and he's upset. And he has all this power. So chapter 2 begins by talking about after these things, after the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, after his anger was reduced, he remembered Vashti and what had been decreed against her. Notice what had been decreed against her. It's put in the passive sense. Not as if he decreed this against her, but what was decreed against her? He remembered how it went. He's not even taking responsibility for the decree that caused his own wife, the queen, to be gone. After these things, when the king of Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her, blaming other people for his decisions. See, that's one of the dangers of Persia. He's blaming others. He killed some of his own men, we read in history, when they failed to build a bridge quickly enough due to a storm. He had them beheaded. This is the kind of man that is in this position. But this man, 
forgot that his wife was a person, not a piece of furniture. He forgot that Vashti was not a Persian rug, certainly not a Persian doormat. At least in her own eyes, that was true. She's not a doormat. She could say no, and she did. But in the eyes of the kingdom, you see, she had no rights. Vashti. And that's what we need to understand. She had no rights, according to them. Her reasons for not appearing before the king were irrelevant to them. Irrelevant to the king. The king at a whim could tell her that she could no longer be queen. He desired to show off her beauty. How could she refuse? The king beckons and beauty appears. All admire his possessions. The goblets and the queen. Just one of them. What's the solution? Well, he remembers Vashti. There's some indication in our text that the king was thinking about her. It's not a Hollywood story. The king breaking stuff in his bedroom. But the servants suggests the way forward. There's a decision to seek a queen, verses 1 to 4. Then Esther is taken to the house where she will be prepared, verses 5 to 11. And then finally, Esther is chosen as queen, verses 12 to 18. So the decision to seek a queen, Esther taken to the house where she's going to be prepared, and then Esther is chosen as queen in the 10th month of the 7th year. Remember, Chapter 1, the king listens to his advisors. Those are the people that he pays attention to. He has power, tremendous power, but he can't make decisions on his own. So the king's servants are the ones who come up with this plan. They say uh, in verse 2, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the capital, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This was not the way it usually went in Persia. The king's father was married to people who were part of the royal family. That's how it worked. He didn't do this kind of thing. But this is how the king uh, is listening to his visors, and it pleases him, and so he carries it out. He's being driven by this advice that comes from these advisors. And this is how the Lord is quietly preparing for his people to be delivered for his people to be saved through these actions of these pagans. You know what's happening. These young women are being gathered because they have to appear. They don't have a choice. What Vashti refused to do is not an option for these women. Before you think of only women involved in this power play, consider the word eunuch that's used in verse 3. Eunuch. They not only gathered women, they gathered gathered men. They castrated them, and that's how they became eunuchs. And this is the kind of powerful empire, empire into which we are drawn in this story. They're summoned unto eunuchs who represent a kingdom that does not care about people. 
The king chooses a queen who has to be the one who pleases him. That's how it's work. And you know how this is laid out. There's a search for someone who's called in verses 2 and 3, uh, beautiful young virgins. There are three criteria. They have to be extra good looking, they have to be young, and they have to be unmarried. That's putting it nicely. The passage doesn't yet tell us what will happen. Pleasing the king uh, is what is uh, front and center, though. The king's pleasure is what rules him. We saw this in chapter 1 already. He's come back from failing to take Greece, and his pleasure rules him now. This is how he is going to spend the rest of his life, ruled by his pleasure. All of the kingdom must meet this demand for the king's pleasure. And so he's seeking a virgin, someone of a marriageable age, also not in a really, never been in a relationship with a man. This is pretty disgusting. What, that the king has all this power to call on his officers to go out and traffic for women, to gather them for himself. What we're seeing here is the ugliness of human sin. The ugly desire in the heart of man, how we operate, given the opportunity without restraint. King Ahasuerus, you see, he was just in a position where he had the power to do what he wanted. Some people don't have that power. That doesn't mean they don't have the desire. People exist for ourselves and for our pleasure. See, that's the idea. Anytime we begin to think that way, we're thinking like King Ahasuerus. We're thinking like fallen creatures. So before we condemn King Ahasuerus, we have to see how God provided for the people of God. We have to see how God, in the midst of this fallen situation with this corrupt, power-hungry king living for his own pleasure, was used by God to accomplish the deliverance of his people. People are going to be treated in lots of terrible ways in the book of Esther. In verse 5, we read that in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. It's very important that we understand that Mordecai is the son of Kish. Kish, Saul's father. King Saul's father. If you understand verse 6 to speak of Mordecai being carried away, he would have been 120 years old. Actually, Kish was the one who was carried away with Jeconiah. So the connection to King Saul, which is going to expand in this book, is very important. We're going to see more in the relationship between Haman and Mordecai. But here, Mordecai is being connected to unfinished business in the history of redemption. This will affect the outcome of his story. God is at work. He's tying up loose ends. He's taking care of unfinished business. He's working his plan. He's working wisely in the midst of a fallen, power-hungry, pleasure-centered place where people are not treated like people. He's working. Vashti's choice, the decisions of drunken men, Mordecai prepared and ready at this moment. It's all connected 
with something in redemptive history that King Saul failed to do. Mordecai has brought up Esther. Notice in verse 7 that Esther has two names. Verse 7, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. Hadassah, that's Esther. She has two names, one Persian and one Jewish. Jewishness is important to our story, to its outcome and to the timing of her revelation. The timing of her revelation of being Jewish is what is most important in this story. But it's very important that we understand that Esther, having this background, is one who has been brought up to be self-controlled and one who listens to people who are able to give her wise counsel. See, that's the other thing that God has prepared. Not just made her beautiful. He's made her one who has self-control and who's able to listen to wise counsel. She stands in contrast to King Ahasuerus in this way. This is the one who gives her wise counsel. Mordecai. Mordecai brought up Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. She was an orphan. And Mordecai is the one who brought her up as her earthly father. And the Lord prepared her for this time in history. She had the gift of beauty that came from God. This young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The relationship to Mordecai as a, an authority figure, as her father, continues. It will continue throughout this story. It's, it's very important. King Ahasuerus, who's ruled by his own pleasure, will not rule over Esther in every way. He won't rule over her in terms of the place in her heart where she listens to Mordecai and follows his guidance. You see, there's a separation. They're going to be married. They're going to be king and queen. But she has a place in her heart that is going to listen to Mordecai. That's very important. So verse 8 uh, begins to uh, speak of the king's order and the, this edict. The young women are gathered uh, to Shushan, the citadel under the company of Haggai. And Esther was also taken into this place. You notice how the Persian system works. You have to have someone in charge of these young women who won't take them for himself. So you make him a eunuch. This is an oppressive system. It's oppressive for the women. It's oppressive for the men who are under the thumb of Persia. So Esther begins to please Haggai, the eunuch who was in charge of her. Verse 9 tells us that uh, she obtained his favor and he shows kindness to her. He provides for her what she needs. He readily gave her beauty preparations besides uh, her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. So she has seven maidservants providing for her because Haggai is recognizing that she is one who needs to be given favor. He recognizes it and he is drawn to her because of the way that she listens to guidance from others. Already Esther is starting to be elevated. It's quite a, kind of a different path from Joseph, if you remember his story. 
he interpreted a dream and he sat in the palace until finally, a long time later, the Lord brought him to a place of elevation. Daniel uh, in exile continues to pray three times a day. Esther seems almost passive. She seems like she's resting on her, on her beauty. But we know that there's this part in her heart that causes her to listen to wise counsel from Mordecai. She listens to him as a father. And now she's receiving provisions from the eunuch who's in charge of her. This is a dark place. You can't get away from that. The Persian Empire mistreats people royally. Yet the Lord is providing for Esther and for her deliverance along with her people. Esther is beautiful, as formed by God, and she, now she has kindness uh, given to her to be situated as she needs to be situated. But what we read in verse 10 is important. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Her Jewishness is going to be kept secret for now. Mordecai understands that that has to be. Mordecai commanded her not to make it known. And so the kingdom of the, this world uh, expressed most directly in Esther's life through Persia cannot touch her in this part of her identity because it doesn't know about it. It's completely uh, beyond their sight. And then Mordecai is, as you can imagine, pacing in front of the court of the women's quarters. The father figure, he's raised this girl. She's now in this oppressive system. They're giving her uh, this eunuch who's in, in charge of her. She's, she's on the track to, to go meet with the king. He's pacing. My daughter is in there. You can imagine it. What's become of her? What's happening? Verse 12 tells us, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation. That's a long time, according to the regulations for the women. I don't know if I have done beauty preparations for a day. <laughs> 12 months of, six months of oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now I had stitches when I was younger and I had to, you know, like treat the stitches. I had to put you know, peroxide on and stuff. Six months of oil of myrrh, six months of perfumes, preparations. And then thus prepared, each young woman went to the king after a year of preparation. Some people think this is an exaggerated number, but you have this uh, six months banquet and six months, uh, 12 months preparing women to meet with the king. You're meant to look at Persia and just think this is really over the top. This is just beyond ridiculous. A six month banquet to try to get people on your side for a war 
12 months of beauty preparation so you can go in for one night with the king. And then uh, verse 13 says that each young woman was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. What do you need? You have one opportunity. Again, extremely, extremely oppressive. One opportunity. And then when you go in to the king, then you go back to the custody of the concubine's house and you become one of his concubines. So after 12 months, beauty preparations, you're with the king one night, then you become one of his concubines. And you wait. That's how it works. One opportunity, you don't go back unless he calls you all oriented around his pleasure, an incredibly oppressive system, not a beauty contest alone. There's much more going on. It's far uglier. The beauty of these women contrasts the ugliness of the system that they're in. Their beauty is an aspect of the ugliness of the system. Verse 15 is important, though. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. This is why the Lord has Esther in this place. This is the preparation for her. Not just the 12 months of beauty treatments, but the preparation for her, her character, so that she is willing to listen to Haggai and what he advises. She is one who listens to wise counsel. Is this right or is this wrong? The story doesn't tell us at this point. The story is designed to show us how God steadily worked in the midst of an oppressive, tyrannical place like the place that our Lord Jesus entered. Like this fallen world as a whole. The way that the Lord Jesus Christ entered into this world. Think of the oppression of someone who was in a perfect love relationship with his father from all eternity, from eternity past, entering into a world where his life was going to be threatened, where two-year-olds were being killed to try to find him, where he had no place to be born except a stable. It's a picture of this world and how it operates so that we might be drawn to this better beauty. It's a beauty that is invisible to the eyes of the world. See, Esther's beauty was visible, but there was that invisible part. And the invisible part is important in this story. The fact that she was able to listen to wise counsel, the fact that she had self-control, that's important to this story. Her upbringing was important, invisible to Persia. Esther has beauty, physical beauty, given by God, but she has this other quality. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised. She's listening to him. She doesn't seek to make 
this one night with the king into an opportunity to flaunt herself. She simply follows the path that's laid out for her. It's not a pleasant path. But Esther obtained favor. She obtained favor, verse 15 says, in the sight of all who saw her. Favor. That's a covenant word. And it's used in Persia. People around her. She has Mordecai on her side. She has Haggai providing for her. And now favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She's being given favor because of the Lord's work. It's a disgustingly ugly process, but the Lord is raising her up. And verse 16 says, uh, she was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, that is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. It's been four years since that first banquet. Now he takes her into the palace. And verse 17 says that he loved her, but I don't want you to read too much into that word love. He loved her, it says, verse 17, more than all the other women. It's like a romance movie. The king falls in love with Esther. It's mutual. No, it's not like that. It's all about the king's pleasure. He has a house of concubines on the side. Esther would not always be called to him, we find out. She obtained, though, these other covenant benefits. Look at this. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Why are those words being used? In Persia, grace and favor in his sight? It's because you're meant to see that the Lord is at work here. He's at work even in the way that King Ahasuerus responds to Esther. There's a queen in Persia. Do you want that title? But Esther's there because the Lord is delivering his people. And then the king makes a big, great feast. It's, it's called the Feast of Esther, verse 18, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. A royal celebration. The king has found a queen, one who meets his requirements. So what do we do with Esther's beauty and how the Lord uses it? He enables her to re receive this place of honor in Persia, a place that isn't following the ways of God. We need to remember the Lord Jesus. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus, when he came into this world, had a beauty that the world did not recognize. He was largely unnoticed by many, but he had a better beauty. Isaiah 53 says, For she shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The Lord Jesus comes and there's no beauty that we should desire him. He has a kind of beauty that the world does not recognize. 
Isaiah 52 and verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Just think about that. His visage, his appearance was marred more than any man. That's terrible disfiguring. And that this is, yet this is the one that verse 15 of Isaiah 52 says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. How is it that Esther is made so beautiful? And these beauty treatments and the advice of Haggai serve for her to go into the presence of this pagan king. And the Lord Jesus is not beautiful. What's happening? He was rejected and despised and mocked and spit upon. People recoil from him. You see, the story of Persia shows us the full depravity of the human heart. And in order to deal with the full depravity of the human heart, God sent his son. He sent his son to produce something that stands in contrast to the depraved human heart. He sent his son to produce the beauty of holiness. The ugliness of oppression, how men and women are treated in Persia, we see this. But in order to provide for the people of God to have the beauty of holiness, Jesus Christ had to come. Psalm 27 says this, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To behold the Lord's beauty. That is the goal. The one desire that the psalmist holds out. The Holy Spirit is accenting that for you. To behold the beauty of the Lord. A beauty that the world doesn't recognize. The beauty of holiness. In order for Esther to serve in this place, she had to have physical beauty that the Lord provided for her in order to attract the attention of the externally driven Persians. In order to be exalted as queen. But in order for her to serve as queen in the way that the Lord had laid out for her, she had to have these other invisible qualities. Qualities that the Lord also provided for her. Listening to Mordecai and the eunuch, obtaining grace and favor in Persia. But we know, as we consider such stories, that there is ugliness and violence and wickedness in the world in which we live. And there's ugliness and violence and wickedness in our own hearts. How is the Lord going to deal with that? It's because of the way in which he is beautiful. It's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ that draws us to him. That beauty is on display at the cross. The ugly work of the cross shows the beauty of Jesus Christ. The son obedient to his father's will. Despite the fact that he's sweating drops of blood. The son willing to give himself for sinners. 
The son calling out to the father from the cross. If you see it with the eyes of faith, it's a beautiful thing. God showing his love for an ugly, wicked, and violent world. He's showing his love for those who would receive Jesus Christ. He's showing his love for you. And his love is beautiful. It's designed to make you holy. It's designed to give you that beauty. But it's a beauty that comes from him. We are designed to behold the beauty of the Lord. Like Psalm 27 and verse 4 says, and that's why the Lord Jesus had to come and face the ugliness that he experienced. I mean, you have to think about it. Why is Jesus enduring rejection when Esther is the one who's received by everybody? In order to show true beauty, not just outward beauty, but the beauty that men, the men and that men and boys and girls, uh, men and women and boys and girls uh, naturally desire, but a beauty that they don't naturally desire, but a beauty that wins us over anyway. Christ's beauty is better. This is a kind of beauty that wins us, woos us, and causes us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us to see the beauty of the Lord. We ask that you would see his holy desire to do your will. His pathway to becoming oppressed and uh, mistreated and handled roughly in order to win our salvation. In order to set us free from the clutches of the devil. In order to give us the ability to be called away from the siren call of the world. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. A beauty that is invisible to the world because they will not look at what has happened at the cross. They will not consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They will not consider the fact that there is one who is beautiful beyond their ability to see, risen and exalted and ascended into heaven. They will not acknowledge the fact that there is one who is so beautiful that he can transform their ugliness. In a world that is driven by outward appearance, knowing that you look on the heart, we are especially appreciative of what you have provided for us on the inside through union with Jesus Christ. We ask that you would enable us to see his beauty and to follow him and to be drawn to exhibit the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that rejects him. Because that is what truly matters. We pray that you would help us to behold your beauty and to reflect it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.